Welcome to today's message from First Baptist Church in Divine, Texas, where our mission is to equip all generations to impact lives for Christ. You can find today's message and more information at www.fbcdivine.org. Now, let's listen to the latest teaching from First Baptist Church, Divine. From Jeremiah chapter 33, I'll read beginning in verse 10, and I'll conclude at verse 16. The Word of God reads, Thus says the Lord, In this place of which you say, It's a waste without man or beast. In the cities of Judah and the streets of Jerusalem that are desolate, without man or inhabitant or beast, there shall be heard again the voice of mirth and the voice of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom and the voice of the bride, the voices of those who sing as they bring thank offerings to the house of the Lord. Give thanks to the Lord of hosts, for the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever. For I will restore the fortunes of the land as at first, says the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, In this place that is waste, without man or beast, and in all of its cities, there shall again be habitations of shepherds resting their flocks. In the cities of the hill country, in the cities of the Shephelah, in the cities of the Negev, in the city in the land of Benjamin, the places about Jerusalem, and in the cities of Judah, flocks shall again pass under the hands of the one who counts them, says the Lord. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will fulfill the promise I made to the house of Israel and the house of Judah. In those days and at that time I will cause a righteous branch to spring up for David, and he shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In those days Judah will be saved, and Jerusalem will dwell securely. This is the name by which it will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. This is the word of God for the people of God. I recognize, and maybe you do too, it didn't take very long, did it? I mean, the moment we put down our forks and finished our Thanksgiving feasts, the radio stations started playing Christmas songs. Churches like ours began to announce our special Christmas events. Uh, We noticed maybe our neighbors began climbing steep ladders to decorate their homes. And something we have not missed is that the the retail stores have begun pumping up their marketing, trying to convince we need everything they're selling to prepare for the festivities to come. Oh, it must be Christmas, right? I'll tell you, I often find myself in a jumbling of contradictory feelings going on within me during this time. I mean, on the one hand, there there truly is a thrill in the air as the season approaches. It's an easy time to speak of the gospel as we give gifts to others because God gave us the gift of His Son. But yet on the other hand, amid all the the hustle and bustle of the season, I can too easily either get jaded with the overload of holiday commercialism, or I can get so caught up in it that I forget the grand and glorious reason of why we do all of these things in the first place. I wonder right now, do you find all of these things present in you too? Whatever you you find yourself going on within you as the festivities begin, I think it's good for you and I to be reminded of what the incarnation is. 
why the incarnation matters and why the incarnation has simply changed everything as we know it. It was the Christian devotional writer Anne Voskamp who described Christmas in this way. She said, So God throws open the door of this world and enters as a baby, as the most vulnerable imaginable, because he wants unimaginable intimacy with you. She asks, what religion ever had a God that wanted such intimacy with us that he came with such vulnerability to us? What God ever came so tender we could touch him, so fragile that we could break him, so vulnerable that his bare beating heart could be hurt? Only the one who loves you to death. I wonder right now, what should our response to this be? I would suggest to you that it's the hymn that captures it best. Rejoice and be merry in song and mirth. Praise the Redeemer, all creatures of earth. For it is the birthday of Jesus, our King, who brought us salvation. His praises, His praises, we sing. Here's where we're headed today in the next three weeks. Each Sunday in Advent, uh, during the lighting of the Advent candle, you hear a specific theme introduced, and we'll bring to you a message in support of that theme. So as you heard, the, the Pierce's announced this morning, our focus or our theme is hope. And for us today, we turn our attention to Jeremiah chapter 33, verses 10 through 16, where we find ourselves waiting in hope. And in our waiting in hope, I want us to dig into this text by seeing first that God promises a future peace. God promises to you and I a future peace. Now, I'll tell you that the book of Jeremiah, along with the other prophetic books of the, of the Old Testament, those books should not be read like a normal book that you were picking up off of a bookshelf or, or ordering in for Amazon or something like that. It's not a normal book that has the, the traditional introduction and, and main body and a conclusion. Instead, these prophetic works of the Old Testament should be read as a collection of speeches that the prophet that God led to speak gives to a certain audience. Each of these speeches have a few brief descriptions about how these speeches affected the prophet's own life situation. And so, in recognizing that, Allow me to set the historical context for you to get a sense of the issues at play within Jeremiah, Jeremiah's ministry and indeed what, what Jeremiah is living and walking through as he, as he speaks this. And I bring to your attention, and we have to start with the prophet Isaiah who ministered before and during and after the year 722 B.C., which was the time that the northern kingdom of Israel fell to a nation known as Assyria. Afterward, the Assyrians continued to trouble the southern kingdom of Judah. They did so for some time. And the means by which they troubled Judah was they demanded that the, the Judahites pay a tribute to them. If you will, they charged them to keep the Assyrian army from, from crossing the border. And Judah did this. 
And it prompted many within Judah to begin looking to other nations, specifically the nation of Egypt, for help. Because they looked and they saw an Egypt who was in her own right, coming back to a position of power in the world. However, in the year 640 BC, Josiah became the the, the king of the nation of Judah. And he began a reformation in the nation after he finds, if you will, the Bible. He finds and discovers the book of the law in the temple. And Josiah is struck by what he finds as he reads from the book of the law. And he calls the nation to repentance. In fact, he, he enacted, he called for the nation to stop paying those tribute payments to the Assyrian king. And he told the people of Judah to stop looking to any other nation for help. Don't look to Egypt. Don't look to Assyria. Don't look anywhere else. Look to the Lord your God himself. What he called the nation to do. As history would have it, during Josiah's reforms, many things did get better within Judah. But he couldn't couldn't completely reform the nation. And around them, things continued developing among other nations. You would find that Assyria was growing weaker. And well, they couldn't couldn't bully the other nations of the world, of the region at the time, to, to, to continue to make those tribute payments. Egypt seems strong, but they would eventually fall to now a third nation, a third power on the scene, known as Babylon. And in 612 BC, the Babylonians decisively sacked the city of Nineveh, which was the capital of Assyria. The same Babylonians, they continued to march south, and they began a a campaign against that southern kingdom of Judah. And the first time they came into Jerusalem was the year 605 BC. And when they came, they struck fear into the people of God, and they struck fear into the new king of Judah, whose name is Jehoiakim. And in the course of striking this fear, they take with them a group of captives who they will bring out of the land into their own. Among among this group of captives are names that you might be familiar with. Names like Daniel and his friends were among that first group of exiles. And you fast forward a bit to the year 597 B.C., which was the next time that the Babylonians came. And the next time they came, they installed a puppet king whose name is Jehoiakim. And they take with them another large group of captives. And among that group of exiles who they'd taken captive was the name who you know as the prophet Ezekiel. Their king Jehoiakim ended up only being king for three months because the Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar came back and he installed another king. His name was Zedekiah. And from the years 597 through 586 BC, things went from bad to worse as Zedekiah tried to save Judah. He didn't try to save Judah by actually trusting in God like, like the word of God would have called the king to do. He tried to save Judah by secretly aligning Judah with the other nations of the world that opposed Babylon. Here's the thing about this. Eventually, word gets out when you do those types of things. Nebuchadnezzar finds out about what Zedekiah was doing. And Nebuchadnezzar, the leader of Babylon, gets very angered by this. And he comes back to Jerusalem in the year 586. And he lays siege to Jerusalem this time fully conquering the city, completing their campaign against Judah. And it's in these turbulent days in the life of the people of God that God spoke to his people through the prophets named Nahum 
Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Ezekiel, Daniel, Jeremiah. All books, of, all prophetic books in our Old Testament. And it shouldn't be surprising to us really that throughout Scripture, when it seems as if all were dark, if, when it seems that all were hopeless, God does the unimaginable by raising up a prophet to shine forth the light of truth. Now then comes a question. What did God say through Jeremiah to his people? Well, if you've read the book, you know the answer is, it's not easy to hear. The entire book is almost entirely dedicated to one thing. God rebuking his people, God judging his people, God reminding his people of his freedom, reminding his people of God's own right, reminding his people of God's own desire to hand God's people over to the Babylonians. In fact, as you read along in chapters 2 through 20, God judges Judah for their idols. He judges them for their false religion. He judges them for listening to false prophets of supposed peace. He judges them for breaking the covenant. He tells them of their coming judgment for all of these things. And he calls them to repentance. You read on a bit more in chapters 21 through 24. God says he himself will fight not for his people, but God himself will fight against his people. God will join and go in league with the Babylonians. Why? Because of the many sins of his own people. And he calls them to be aware that the only way to save themselves is not to put up a fight, but to go into exile and to head into, into captivity. And you read in chapters 25 through 29, God telling his people that he'll send for and send out all the hosts of the north into Judah, Judah to take people away in exile for 70 years. Jeremiah is preaching this. Not good news. And for being God's mouthpiece for all of this, God's people responded by arresting Jeremiah for speaking against them, for speaking against the holy city of Jerusalem. But they end up letting the guy go because they think that Jeremiah is going to think more clearly after he's done a little bit of time and after being arrested and warned not to do this anymore. But then you read on. Chapters 34 through 36, God brings more rebuke to his people, specifically a rebuke for just rejecting the Bible. And then they arrest Jeremiah again in chapter 37 because now, now people in Jerusalem think that, that Jeremiah is not even one of them, that he's teamed up with Babylon. And after arresting him, they threaten to kill Jeremiah. They throw him into a deep well for speaking against them in chapter 38. But once again, they release him. And when Jeremiah speaks again, he picks up exactly where he left off. Jeremiah starts warning them about, uh, about how they're about to be taken to exile. And in chapter nine, that's exact, uh, 39, that's exactly what happens. Chapter 39 opens with this. In the ninth year of Zedekiah, king of Judah, in the tenth month, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and all his army came against Jerusalem, besieged it. And the book of Jeremiah ends in chapters 40 through 52 with the aftermath of the exile, with God's judgments against the surrounding nations. And with the last nation in the book of Jeremiah to be judged is none other than Babylon herself. 
Perhaps now, more than ever, you might understand a bit more why Jeremiah is often referred to as the weeping prophet. Because not only do we see God speaking judgment through him to God's people, but all throughout these chapters, we get peaks here and there of all the toll that these things are having on Jeremiah himself. The book itself is a, is a long and ugly picture of the destination that we'll arrive at if we continue on rejecting the word of God. But though judgment is the main thrust of the book, there are moments where the light of hope and promise shines through just like the morning sun on a new day. Specifically, right in the middle of the book, there is this whole chunk of chapters, chapters 30 through 33, where we see God promise a return from exile, where we see God promise a new king on the throne of David, where we see God promise a new covenant, which would bring God's people the greatest possible redemption and restoration. And it's in this middle portion where we find our text for our first Sunday in Advent. That's where we begin. It's a long introduction, I know. But the context for the verses I really want us to focus on, which are verses 14 through 16, we find in verses 10 through 13, so we'll begin there. And to a people being given over to exile due to their own unfaithfulness, God, uh, uh, comes the promise of a faithful God. A promise from God about God remembering, about God fulfilling, about God bringing God's own promises to pass. What does this mean for the people who heard this, who received this? For them, it meant future restoration. And this, would have, this, this announcement, this proclamation, it would have been nothing short of shocking to them. I mean, reminding you of verse 10, God mentions what all his people are saying, right? They're saying that Jerusalem, the holy city, is a place that has been laid waste to. It's abandoned and in ruins. It's desolate. It's, a, it's an apocalyptic picture that we see Hollywood try to grasp all the time. A tumbleweed rolling across. Not even a human being or an animal walking about on the roads. But as chapter 29 mentioned briefly, one that I know gets twisted but we know well, the Lord has a plan for his people. And the Lord always has a plan to prosper his people and not to harm them. And God says again in chapter 32, verse 41, I will rejoice in doing them good. He said, this is God's heart being revealed. God says, and I will plant them in this land in faithfulness. And I'll do so with all my heart and with all my soul. Even more so later in verse 3 of this same chapter, God says that he has great and unsearchable things to tell his people. Well, what are, these, what are these plans to prosper them by? What are these good things that he will bring upon them? What are the great and unsearchable things that God desires to tell his people? Well, into the context of the desolate city in verse 10 comes the bright hope of reversal. In verse 11, the word of God says, There shall be heard again the voice of mirth, if you're not familiar with that word, there shall be heard again the voice of Mary, the, the voice of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom and the voice of the bride, the voices of those who sing as they bring thank offerings to the house of the Lord. Oh, give thanks to the Lord of hosts. 
For the Lord is good. For his steadfast love endures forever. And God promises that he will restore the fortunes of the land as they were at the first. Think of a wedding for a moment. Weddings are usually an occasion of of covenantal celebration where one man and one woman covenant before God and one another. There are occasions of dancing. There are occasions of laughter, of cake, where gifts are given and toasts of all kinds are made to the happy and new family. That's the picture that we have here of what's promised to come. God expands on this in verses 12 and 13, saying that in the desolate Jerusalem, shepherds will once again have abundant work keeping and counting their flocks. Exile and war would have meant that that the social events like this, like weddings, or or the normal everyday vocation like, like shepherding would have come to an end. But here God promises a redemptive reversal to their exile such that all these things will occur again. I recognize right now I have just forklifted a bunch of information, hopefully into your brain. I've done a lot of explaining. But I want us to put all of this into some imaginative use for a moment. Can you imagine living through this? Imagine for a moment that each of us here at First Baptist Church Divine have been conquered by an invading horde. We've been enslaved. We're lined up, numbered. We're ordered to march to a faraway country where we can no longer gather and assemble for the occasion that we have today. We cannot freely worship, nor can we live as we desire to. And imagine in this terrible nightmare of a dream that this is something that you live not for years no years would be too light imagine that you live this for decades and in the course of living this for decades the sense of a loss of hope begins to settle in it's met by a tension that you still yet hope against all hope god will finally rescue Imagine it. Then imagine God doing just that. God rescuing us out, bringing us back. Imagine us gathering uh, back here again for the first time in what seemed like an eternity. Can you imagine how loud our voices would be at that first song? Can you imagine how wonderful our fellowship would be? Can you imagine how you wouldn't be concerned with how long that first sermon was? As Jeremiah writes in Jeremiah 33, the people of Judah may be leaving, but God tells them He will one day bring them back to the same city. That He'll bring them back to sing the same song. To worship the same Lord. That there will be a day in which weddings occur. Festivities will be enjoyed. Soldiers can return to the fields and shepherd their flocks. And peace is what will reign where devastation once ruled. This, my friends, is what God is promising to His people. 
But this is only the beginning of the story. God would not only bring them back and give them peace, but he would give them a new king who is characterized by peace. So God promises a king of peace. That's what he gets to in verses 14 through 16, where the the word of the Lord says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will fulfill the promise I made to the house of Israel and the house of Judah. In those days and at that time, I will cause a righteous branch to spring up for David, and he shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In those days, Judah will be saved, and Jerusalem will dwell securely. And this is the name by which it will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. Now, I need you to know that the the people of God had many kings in their time, a few of which are noteworthy, a few of which are exemplary models of righteousness for the people. And when I mention exemplary models of righteousness, uh, noteworthy, I know you might think of kings like David. You may even perhaps think of Solomon, maybe even further, Hezekiah and Josiah. But by and large, most of the kings that ruled and reigned amongst the people of God were not exemplary models of righteousness. Rather, they were exemplary models of unrighteousness. And here God says he'll fulfill his promise of old and he will give his people a new king. See in verse 15 that that the king is called not David himself, but a righteous branch springing up from David. When the people heard this, they would have remembered the great Davidic covenant that you find in 2 Samuel chapter 7, where God promises to establish the throne and kingdom of David forever. They would have also known that this promise was only initially fulfilled in David's son Solomon. It was Solomon who would build the Lord a house in the great Solomonic temple. But Solomon, we know, ultimately fails to usher in a a permanent peace that was promised to David. So who is it that we're talking about here? Is it Hezekiah? Is it Josiah? Maybe in small ways, perhaps. But they didn't quite fit the magnitude of the promises of that promise of God to David. And we wonder, who then is this branch springing up from the line of David? Who could it be? My friends, it's none other than the one who is both David's son and David's Lord, Christ Jesus, the Messiah of God. That's why you find Matthew beginning his gospel with with Jesus' genealogy as the son of David. That's why you find Peter saying in his sermon at Pentecost that David's throne, that God has established David's throne forever in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's why you find the Apostle Paul beginning his letter to the his great letter to the Romans with a statement that the gospel concerns one man, one man, Jesus the Christ, who was descended from David by the flesh. And in verse 15, that Christ the King will execute justice and righteousness in the land. Unlike all the unfaithful kings of old, it is Christ the King who will be flawlessly faithful and will live and lead justly and righteously. It's in Christ's ministry and in Christ's kingdom that the humble are exalted and the exalted are humbled, where the sinful and the lost find welcome and redemption while the proud and the arrogant find rebuke and judgment. 
That's why we see in verse 16 that God's people, because of the coming of Christ, the King, that's why we see that God's people will be saved and why God's people will dwell securely. It's this King who will not look to other nations to save God's, uh, God's people because this King is God Himself. And because he's God himself, he will save people himself. He'll save them not by waging a mighty military campaign against all the nations of the world, but he'll save them by initially humbling himself, by becoming one of us at his birth, by ultimately allowing himself to be killed by all the enemies of God. But though he died, and though he was laid in the tomb, This King, Jesus, verse 4, in resurrection power. And in his, his, His resurrection, He accomplished victory against the evil one for all who would believe in Him. My friends, this is how God will save His people. So see then that what verse 16 ends with? Christ the King is righteous, and because He is righteous, all those who place their faith in Him, are given his righteousness as a gift. So much so that the very people of God will be called, the Lord is our righteousness. We call ourselves First Baptist Church Divine, but if we were known by another name, that would be our name. The Lord is our righteousness. My friends, what a promise of light to a people in darkness. Yet you're wondering, maybe this question, So what? So what does this have to do with you? What does it have to do with me? Well, we've called this message on this first Sunday of Advent, Waiting in Hope. Please don't forget that hope was originally absent in Judah at this time. This was a promise of hope originally made to those heading out of Judah into exile in Babylon. For them, this almost unbelievable promise would have given them a present hope that was in a future that was yet to come. This was a call for them to look ahead and put their faith in the coming king who made all the sad things of their existence untrue. These great promises were partially fulfilled when they returned to the land 70 years later, but they lacked the righteous king who would be righteous for them and make them righteous in him. So they still looked ahead in faith for what would come. And of course, that king would come. These great promises would be ultimately fulfilled when David's branch, Jesus Christ, is born. His coming meant salvation for all, for, from, from, for all those from all nations who believed in him and followed him. And for us today, we look back on all of these things being fulfilled. We read of of God coming, of God living, of God dying, of God rising, and and Christ ascending to rule and reign. We hear the gospel preached, and we who have believed in Him, we know the power of Christ in His resurrection. We know the power of salvation. Because we do, we rejoice in the gift of His righteousness, though we are yet still sinners. And regardless of how hostile this world is to us, We love the safety, we enjoy the security of dwelling and abiding in Him forevermore. And yet, despite all of that, 
At times, our sense of exile is deep, isn't it? I mean, aren't we intimately aware that we are made for far more than we currently experience? Aren't we deeply aware that things are not as they should be in this world? And if we're honest, we're deeply aware that we are not as we should be either. I mean, let's just consider for a moment the season that we've now entered. Consider it. Christmas time brings with it moments of joy and merry, yes. But it also brings with it moments of sadness and sorrow, doesn't it? I mean, there comes a time where we look and we see that even the happiest of parties that we attend sometimes have unhappy people at it. Even the merriest of meetings we have to recognize only lasts so long. And as the years roll on, the hand of death makes painful gaps in the family circle. And even, and even when we're in the midst of a wonderful Christmas merriment, we cannot help remembering those who have passed away, can we? And I know we don't talk about these things much out in the open, but there are few of us that don't feel this when the holidays come around. And if we each spoke truth today, I suspect that many of us would admit that there are sorrowful things that are inseparably mixed up with the Christmas party. In other words, there is no Christmas gathering, nor is there any earthly gathering for that matter, that's not without a mixing of emotions. Mixing of emotions like happy and sad, or, or joy and sorrow, or celebration and lament. And yet, my friends, this morning, may you gain a Christmas hope. Hope in what? Well, the people of this passage look forward to the hope that would one day be revealed. We look back at, at the hope that has been revealed. But for the time being, we are like they are. We're exiles. We are sorrow-filled aliens in this world, waiting like they did in Babylon for the fulfillment of God's promises. And we also look ahead, waiting in faith for the return of our King, the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, when He shall come back to usher in His kingdom in full and take us once and for all out of this exile to bring us into that heavenly land, to bring us with Him into the new Jerusalem where He shall ever be our King, and we shall ever be His people, and His praise shall ever be on our lips. That day in which we'll be united unto Him eternally, reunited with those whom we love who went into the grave in Christ. My friends, there comes a day, and it is a glorious day, a day that will outshine the gatherings of Christmas. There comes a day where there will be a gathering, where there will be joy, absent sorrow, where there will be merry without a tear. And that's the hope that we wait for. Because we know that the peace and hope of Christmas only now reigns in parts. But we can come and gather in the confidence of knowing that one day it will reign in full. Thank you for tuning in to this message brought to you by First Baptist Church Divine, located at 308 West Hondo Avenue in Divine, Texas. We invite you to be our guest at our 8.30 a.m. or 11 a.m. services each Sunday. 
You can find more information about First Baptist Church Divine at www.fbcdivine.org, where our mission is to equip all generations to impact lives for Christ. Until next time, may God bless you and keep you.